During the tribulation period, as Antichrist wields his worldwide control, and the false prophet acts as the anti-Holy Spirit, and Satan is feverishly in the background orchestrating it all, God will raise up by his grace and power 144,000 witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They will be powerful and they will be protected evangelists, shielded miraculously from Satan's rage and from the outpourings of God's wrath on earth. God has always had a powerful believing remnant here on earth these will be as the remnant described in malachi's day then they that feared the lord spake one uh, often one to another and the lord hearkened and heard it and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the lord and that thought upon his name and they shall be mine saith the lord of the host in that day when i make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. As Noah and his family were spared the deluge at the ark, as Rahab and her family were spared at the judging and the destruction of Jericho, as Lot was dragged by the angels from the holocaust that came to the Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding area, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the righteous out of temptations and to receive the reserve the unjust into the day of judgment to be punished. Second Peter two nine says that, and Psalm thirty seven verse thirty nine says, "The salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them." He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because their trust is in him. These witnesses were sealed by the Holy Spirit of God back when the seventh seal was opened in chapter 7. And now they are revealed gloriously on Mount Zion with Jesus Christ. While these 144,000 are not the only ones saved during the tribulation period, they are called out by the Lord and commissioned by him to proclaim his gospel in the darkest time ever known to man on earth. There will be a great host of Jews and Gentiles alike who come to know the Lord during this time. Many as a result of the efforts of these 144,000 witnesses. Many of those who are the fruit of their labor will be called upon to die as martyrs. And there will be a great host martyred for the cause of Christ during this period. As we read in Revelation, these are they who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. A great, great host of people will be saved and called to serve the Lord as martyrs. As horrible as that seems to us, in God's mysterious and perfect will, Many will die in that way. But these, these 144,000 will be sealed, uh, kept, guarded by the Lord. And they will usher in to the millennial time. And many say will preach the entire time of the millennium. So you can imagine great will be the fruit of their labor. These witnesses will victoriously join Christ on Mount Zion when he comes to rule and reign. 
Remember that chapters 12 through 14 are an interlude or a parenthesis in the action that we see here in Revelation. And these chapters serve as an interlude between the judgments of God and against the sin on earth. It's almost as if the Lord knows we can only take so much. It's just one seal after another is open and horrible judgments are poured out on earth. And so God in his mercy to John, the, uh, the, the author and the witnesser of these things, pauses, and for us, when we study the book of Revelation, it seems so unbelievable. It's so unlike anything we've ever seen or heard or can even imagine. We we cannot picture all these things in our mind. And so chapters 12 through 14 give somewhat of a reprieve uh, between the judgments of God on earth. And then we're told some things. The seventh trumpet is sounded in chapter 11, verse 15, but the judgments from the seventh trumpet don't uh, unfold until chapter 15. Chapters 12 and 13 are Satan's perspective of the things that unfold during the tribulation period. And here in chapter 14, John and we are reminded of what God is doing. Can I just pause here to remind us all that God is at work this very hour? We live in a dark time, don't we? And it seems as we witness and hear day by day unspeakable things, unprecedented, we use all these kinds of words because even the disease that is ravaging our world today is worldwide, isn't it? There's no place, as far as I know, that has not been touched by it, or not many that have not been. And so this is a this is a uh, something that God has allowed. That's the only way that you can explain it. And we were praying in the prayer meeting this morning for the Lord to stop this epidemic, this whatever you want to call it. But I asked the Lord not to do so until He has worked all that He intended from it because when God does something we need to ask him to teach us and to show us judgment must begin at the house of God among the people of God and while we may not fully understand all the ramifications all that's going on the Lord has attention of people this should be a time of great harvest this should be a time of great giving out the gospel if these 144,000 can witness and bring many to Christ in the darkest time on earth we have no excuses whatsoever. And so as we pray that the Lord would restore our ministries, our children's work, our bus ministries, our special people, we prayed this morning that once again the library would be filled with them. We've not seen them for, for months. But God is at work. He's never idle. He's never not doing what He purposes to do. Now, in our tiny lives, we get upset when we don't see prayers answered immediately and God move and fix things and, and straighten people out and what all we're, we're, we're mulling over and praying over. But God is at work, often behind the scenes, bringing his righteous and sovereign plan to pass. We can rejoice in that today, can't we? We can, we can rest our head upon that pillow. Chapter 14 shows us strength and worship, and devotion, and holiness, and example, and truthfulness. And we want to look at these things this morning. Look there in verse 1. He said, And I looked, and I lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written on their foreheads, the strength of these witnesses. What a sight John sees. That's a lot of people. This is not a figurative. This is a, a hundred and forty-four thousand young men, young Jewish men who've been saved. 
since the rapture of the church, since the catching away of the church, and have been sealed by the Lord. These victorious, sealed, protected, wholesome young evangelists with the Lamb and their Savior. What an army! What an army of the Lord! The Bible says in Psalm chapter 2, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. And that's exactly what King Jesus is about to do as he is there on Mount Zion. He's about to end the wars of all wars. He's about to squelch all rebellion and pride and reign victorious. With a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings, be instructed. And I would tell you this morning, church people, be taught. Listen and hear the word of the Lord, ye judges of the earth. The unbelievers will receive the mark of the beast, we saw in chapter 13. People somehow, about more than any other thing in the book of Revelation, get just fixated on that mark. It's simply this. There will come a time in the midpoint of the Great Tribulation that Antichrist will control all of banking, all of buying and selling, and the only way... To to buy anything at, at, at Costco will be to have a mark in your, in your hand, you know, a mark in your forehead or anywhere. And yet there will be thousands who will not receive the mark. These 144,000, they're converts. The martyrs, many of them will be killed because they will not receive the mark. And yet God sustains them. He keeps them. He provides them. My shepherd shall supply my need. Jehovah is his name. Let me ask you, those whose faith is faltering this morning, those of you who are in hard times, if God can protect and seal and provide for these men in the darkest hour and others who come to faith in Christ during that time, can he not supply your need today? The unbelievers will receive the mark. These will have been sealed and marked by God. Do you know that we're the Lord's? He knows who are his. It is not that Satan and his minions will not try to kill them. They will kill many. They will slay many brutally for following the Lamb. But these are protected. They cannot get to them. God has called them to preach the gospel just as He's called us to in this day. To cry aloud and spare not. Confronting sinners with their unbelief and calling them to repentance to repent of their sins and believe on Jesus Christ. All of God's people are secure. Oh, we revel in that Place He that dwelleth in the secret place shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Under His wings, under His wings. That's where we're, we're protected this morning. Even those who die for their faith cannot be plucked out of His hand because when they shut their eyes in death here, they awake in His likeness. They awake in glory. It's in a split second. They leave this place and they awake in the Father's house. They go directly to be with Him. To be absent from this body is what, child of God? To be present with the Lord. They are protected. They're safe. Our Lord says in some of the most powerful and poignant words of the Scripture in John six thirty seven, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That's the effectual call. 
All that God has given to the Savior will come to him. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Can I just pause there and preach the gospel this morning? To you who are outside of Christ, to you who feel like you've gone too far, that you're a castaway, that no one cares, Jesus will never cast you out. There's no sin so deep. There's no path so far that you've gone. The prodigal was eating slop in the pigsty when he came to himself and went to the Father. Would you run to the Father just now? It's a lie of Satan that you cannot be delivered, that you cannot be forgiven, that you cannot be cleansed. Our Lord's word, take his word and go to him just now. Even while I'm preaching, whosoever cometh to me, I will not cast out. And the church said, amen, amen. Think of it. That's our message. John 10, 28, and I give unto them eternal life. Not temporary life, not probationary life. I give unto them how long of life? Eternal life. And they shall never perish. They shall never utterly fall away. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. All what? All, period. Greater. My Father is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So we notice their strength. They are kept. They're preserved. And do you know, as weak as we are today, we're, we're strong in the Lord. We have the power of His might. We are kept. We are secure in Christ. All other ground is sinking sand. Outside of Christ, the storm will rage and you will be crushed. But in Christ, on the foundation of Jesus Christ, you're eternally safe. And then we notice in verses 2 and 3 their worship. I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of great thunder, their worship was loud. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Have you noticed that wherever the Lamb is, there will be worship? And here they're singing the song of salvation. Like Paul and Silas, after they were beaten for preaching the gospel and put in a, dungeon, a prison, they sang at midnight. Now let me just tell you, church, if Paul and Silas, after being severely beaten, could sing at midnight, what was your excuse for not lifting your voice this morning? Even after beating these evangelists, even after going through great trials and untold persecution, still sing praise to the Lamb. Is He not worthy of our praise? Is He not worthy of our unloosed tongues, of our joyful adoration? Their voices sounded like to, to John, like many waters, like the Niagara Falls, like thunder. The bass, I guess, were thundering out the bass part on how held the power of Jesus' name. Can you imagine the voices with their power and might and the harpers with their harps? Let me ask you, does your praise compare with this? Or were you silent during our singing this morning? If these can sing like this under these circumstances, after all they've been through, why not you? If I didn't have a voice box, I would mouth the words. I would do whatever I could to ascribe glory and honor 
to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are to be, I remind us often, living doxologies of praise to the Lamb that was slain. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain who has borne all of our sin and has cleansed every stain. Hallelujah. Thine the glory. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Thine the glory. Revive us again. Their song began back in chapter 5 verse 9. You might chapter 5 verse 9. You might want to look back there. They sung a new song saying, "Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast been redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, every tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth." And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels around about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. A whole lot of voices saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. All of that is due his name and to every creature which is in heaven and on earth. And are under the earth, and as such are in the sea, and all that are there in them. I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne. Their singing wasn't just noise. So much of what is called music today, and even worship, is not music. It is, it's noise. It isn't musical. But the Holy Spirit records to us that they, their voices sounded like harps, like finely tuned harps. Their singing was melodious. And they were like harps. It was joyful and beautiful and uplifting. This so-called new song is a song about redemption. It is the theme of all of our songs. Wherever God's people gather, they will soon sing about the redemption, the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of the Savior. We cannot stay away from it. We're transfixed by the wounds that purchased us. And forever will be memorialized in heaven in that body, that sinless body that bore all of our sin, took our place and paid an eternity of hell that we should pay when he hung between heaven and earth. Is that not something to sing about? If that doesn't rouse the innermost parts of your soul, then I wonder about your relationship to him. Now, the Bible tells us the angels will join the Old Testament saints, the raptured church, and the redeemed tribulation saints who have been brutally killed. They have something to sing about too, don't they? All praising God for his glorious salvation. Now, the angels don't have not experienced redemption. The unfallen angels have never been lost. They've never experienced sin. The fallen angels can never be saved. And so these angels, uh, in a way, I pity them. They have not known the Lord in the way that we do. And so our singing is from a different perspective. Theirs is from the sinlessness, the glory which they've beheld with him since their, the beginning of time. The perfect harmony and glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They sing with a knowledge that we do not have. They sing with the, the perspective that we can only surmise and read about, but we sing from an experience. 
an experience of grace so amazing, so rich, so full, so free. A grace that caught our falling souls. A grace that reached down, way down in the miry clay and dug us out of the, the clay that, and, and, and broke chains that we had welded with our own rebellion. We sing from that experience. We who were once lost but had been found. We who have been regenerated by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. We which have been taught to fear and reverence His name. We sing from experience. They sing from perspective and knowledge. We sing, and like the blind man that was healed, and they questioned him, he said, All I know is, I was blind, but now I see. That's my argument. That's my apologetic. It's my testimony. I was blind, but now I see. You can't take that from me. You can argue Jesus Christ out of your reasoning, out of your test tubes, out of your equations, out of your science labs, out of your philosophy. I was blind, but now I see. Period. And that's why I sing. That's what I'm singing about. All of heaven will overflow with praise because of God's redemption culminating in the return of Christ. The worship of heaven comes down to earth. That's a glorious thing when that happens. Verse 3 tells us there, they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders and no man could learn the song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. The unsaved can't sing salvation song. They have no clue. They, it's just going through the motion. They can stand and sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, and, and may sing with a, the most beautiful voice on earth, but they cannot sing. The unsaved cannot sing from the experience of a saved sinner. It's all the difference in the world. But those who've been redeemed, who've been bought with a price, saved by the blood of the Lamb, can sing aloud of saving grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. These 144,000 are unique in so many ways. They were saved after the removal of the church. At a time in history when the greatest persecutions and severest of trials, when to follow the Lamb cost everything, like Noah in a dark, dark day, they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Have you, have you found grace in the eyes of the Lord? They have been uniquely separated from all who dwell on earth. It may be that they sing of the song of Moses recorded in chapter 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty, just as we sang today. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. I love that title of the Lord, the King of the saints. He is our 
king, isn't he? He he rules over his church and over us. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou are only art holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. A true sign of a victorious believer's at any time is their heartfelt and continual praise to God. The Psalms end with this command. The last command, the last injunction of the songbook of the Bible says this, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord, praise ye the Lord. And then we see their holiness. Look there in verse 4. A strange verse that many have marveled over. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. You must be reminded, because even in our dark and wicked day, we're so far removed from the Old Testament pagan worship that surrounded the children of Israel. And what will be revived during the tribulation time, it will be revived what was going on in the land of Canaan, the Babylonian mystery religions, all the pagan religions of the past. They were absolutely, sordidly immoral and horrible, too horrible to describe. And it was called worship. All the ancient cults, all the ancient religions, the mystery religions of Babylon, the practice of the inhabitants of Canaan had temple prostitutes and unspeakable deeds and acts. But sexual perversion and practices during the tribulation period will be unparalleled even from the time of Noah, even from the time of the the destruction of the Canaanites, even worse than the destruction of the Sodom and Gomorrah. And from this black, dark backdrop of debauchery, God will raise up these 144,000 morally pure young evangelists. It seems absolutely impossible, would be according to human standards and and influence. In contrast to all the perversion around them, they will remain pure. Notice that the scripture says they were not defiled. And John MacArthur notes in his study Bible, God can keep believers pure in the midst of great immortality, immorality and lewdness. These evangelists have not only resisted the perverse system of the Antichrist, but they will have also resisted all temptation to illicit sexual relations. Now, this does not mean that these were necessarily unmarried because the marriage bed is undefiled and marriage is not prohibited from God's people. And so this does not mean the description of them when you read it is not saying that they were not married, but they did not violate their marriage vows and they were pure in this godless, perverted world. They were chaste could also mean that they were faithful to their marriage vows. It applies in both ways. Maybe some of them were like Paul and unmarried, but uh, probably with that, many of them, many of them were. Notice their devo- devotion in verse 4. These are they which follow the lamb, lamb whithersoever he goeth. The will of God was their life and their breath. They live to do the will of God. They are completely loyal to the Lamb. Are you? Am I? We must remember our Lord's demand. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. These did. They could in the worst time on earth. Can you? These let him deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. The marks of true conversion in any day. Then we see their example. Look at the latter part of verse 4. They were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. While the saved here have been bought, all of us have been bought at the cost of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sinless life and his precious blood. These were bought for a unique ministry and purpose. They will be as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. When you study the Old Testament offerings, the Old Testament believers offered a first fruit of everything they had, the first of their crop, the first fruit. The very first of everything that came their way went to the Lord. The first, first fruit of all the firstborn were the Lord's. This was a principle embedded in their hearts and minds. The first belonged to the Lord. And it's the New Testament standard as well. Seek ye what? Last or third or tenth? No. What is it? Help me. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, these material things in the context will be added to you. It was a sign of their redemption that God owned it all, owned them, owned their children, owned the firstborn, the first fruits of all their, their crops. And it was to be used for the glory of God and in his service. These 144,000 will set aside and be set aside to the Lord as an offering, a first fruit offering. And they saw themselves as such, preaching the gospel to a putrid society, to a lost, God-hating world despised everywhere they went. These young men will be hated in society. They will be mocked. They will be jeered. They will be made fun of their whole ministry. And yet they live to proclaim Jesus Christ. They represent a great host of others who will be saved during the tribulation period and even during the millennium. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 5? I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. A mystery is something that is true, is going to take place, but it's not been fully revealed to us right now. Paul said, I want to show you a mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, lest you think you've got it all figured out. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's the church age. That's where we are. The fullness of the Gentiles the reaping of souls, the great gospel nets being set and drawn in and the gospel call is going out today. Remember, we're before all these events that we're talking about right now and the the fullness of the Gentiles will be coming in. That blindness is part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And then Paul says the most remarkable thing. Romans 11 verse 26 And so all of Israel shall be saved. When we see the Jewish people today, it seems so impossible, doesn't it? So hardened. So far away from the Messiah. They do not consider him at all. And many of them are so far from even the Old Testament Judaism. And Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. And shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is the covenant unto them, my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Oh, Paul was longing for that day. Then we see their truthfulness. Look there in verse 5. And in their mouth was found no guile. 
for they are without fault before the throne of God. Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist will be spewing lies and deceiving wonders just one after another. All of it will be a big sham. The evangelist will simply preach the truth. May I remind you folks, that's all we're called to do. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior. Paul said to the Corinthians, I did nothing but preach unto you Christ and Him crucified. It is the power, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. Please, please never falter, never doubt the power of the gospel. The very gospel itself is the power to save. They will preach God's word without faltering. Shouldn't we do it as well in this dark hour? Shouldn't the church of Christ be the pillar and the ground of truth that the God says that we are? We're to speak the truth in love and, and walk the truth and live the truth. And then lastly, we see their standing. Oh, what a precious place. They are without fault before the throne of God. They are perfect in God's sight. Do you know that God sees you if you're redeemed today, if you're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the perfect standing of His Son. Blameless. Blameless does not mean that we're perfect in action in this life, but it means, this word blameless means that no charge that is laid against them will stick. Their lives are blameless. Not sinless, but redeemed, saved, without fault before the throne of God. Now, our peers... Our mates, our fellow church members can put us under the microscope of scrutiny and find all kinds of faults. Mine are so glaring, you wouldn't have to use a microscope. You could just look. But you're looking from the wrong perspective. If you could climb up into the Father's lap and look through the lens of redemption, if you could look through the lens of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, you would see that all of us have no record but His. Oh, praise His name. Like them, we're to live holy lives in a dark time. We're to preach the everlasting gospel. We're to live lives dedicated to the will of God, to the cause of God, the church that He's building on earth. I will build my church. That's what God is doing right now. As warped and as flawed as we are, this is God's doing. He will perfect His church. He knows exactly how to do that, and He will do that. We don't reject the church because there's sinners in it. If you find one where there's no sinners, don't join it. You'll mess it up. There's no such place on this earth. That's heaven, and we long to be there, but until then, we have each other. The church is not raptured yet. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Do you? Are you? Is that what you're doing? And in their mouth was found no guile. They spoke the truth. And they are without fault before the throne of God. Oh, what a blessed place. Oh, what a standing is mine, the song says. My standing is not in my works, not in myself, but in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you this morning. Words fail us to describe our love and our adoration to you. But we pray that the Spirit of God would move in our midst and help those outside of Christ to see their great need. 
Lord, may they see what Christ has wrought, what he has done. Oh, what a Savior we have. What a glorious, glorious Savior we have. We want all to come to know him. May we be pure and righteous as these, uh, these are that we've read about today. May we live the gospel before a frowning world. Oh, Lord, work in our midst. Work in this time, Lord. Bless the word that was preached today. In Jesus' name, amen.